1 Kings chapter 8 this evening. We didn't quite make our way out of 1 Kings chapter 8 last time together. In 1 Kings chapter 8, at this point, as we've talked about, the temple uh, has now been built in all of its grandeur. Solomon has finished the construction process after seven years of building the temple. And in chapter 8, we began looking at really what was kind of the dedication ceremony of the temple. Remember, they brought the ark there into the Holy of Holies, the rear room of the temple. Uh, that place where uh, God would not only manifest his presence, but again, the ark being the most important piece in many ways of the, the temple worship system, because that's also where the blood atonement would be made there at the mercy seat once a year by the high priest going in with the sacrifice of an innocent substitute to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And we saw that Solomon, the king, not one of the priests, but the national leader himself, Solomon, was really directing this whole dedication ceremony of the spiritual direction of the people. And we saw this lengthy prayer as Solomon raised his hands towards heaven and began to just pray and to seek God, asking for God's favor upon the people, praying in many ways things that were prophetic in regards to times when the nation would even turn away from God, that God would bring them back into right relationship with him. And as Solomon is just praying to God, asking his good hand upon the people and asking for his favor upon the people of God there. It seems at some point toward the end of the prayer or in the midst of the prayer, Solomon just in complete humility just drops down to his knees uh, before the people as he's praying this prayer of dedication. We left off last time there in verse 54 as Solomon was coming to a close of this prayer of dedication at the temple itself. It says, verse 54, we left off last time. So it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer, in supplication of the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. And then verse 55, we pick it up. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying. Now, take notice, after Solomon spends some time praying and asking for God's hand and God's favor upon the people, it's at this point Solomon now stands back up, again, having prostrated himself before the Lord, really just humbled himself as their national leader, showing them uh, certainly a great example, praying over the nation, wanting God's presence and hand to be involved among the people of God. He now stands up and the end of chapter 8, he's now basically going to pronounce sort of a blessing upon the people, sort of a, a benediction as this ceremony and dedication of the temple comes to a close. But I think it's an interesting parallel that it's after he has spent time in prayer for the people that he now stands and it says he begins to pronounce a blessing over the people. And I think there's a beautiful pattern there, certainly, in regards to not just what Solomon does here, literally, but for all of our lives personally, that usually the greatest way we can be a blessing to other people is having spent time in prayer in the presence of the Lord and so oftentimes it is after we have spent time seeking God ourselves 
that we can be the greatest representation for the Lord, whether it's pronouncing a blessing, being used by God to speak helpful words that will bless and strengthen God's people, or just in any way to be a blessing as Solomon here is seeking to do that for the people of God. It's after we've spent time in the presence of the Lord that often we're able to be the greatest blessing for the Lord. And so we see Solomon now standing up after this lengthy prayer He stood and he begins to bless the assembly of Israel, saying, verse 56, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. And there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. So Solomon sort of reflects back and he's just sort of here worshiping God for his goodness. Blessed be the Lord, he says. He's given rest to us as people. And he says, and, and not one word of all the promises of God. You notice he references all the way back to the time of his servant Moses. Now that's taking us back hundreds of years, all the way back to the time when Moses, remember, was sent to God's people when they were there in bondage in, in Egypt as slaves and that whole process of how Moses was called by God and then went in and helped bring by God's direction through his life the deliverance out of Egypt and then the whole process of taking them uh, in the time of the wilderness and the putting together of the tabernacle and I mean all the promises of God from Moses all the way up to this point and, and here he says not notice not one word Not one word of all God's good promises have ever failed. Uh, Here he's basically just reflecting in many ways upon the faithfulness of God. That uh, it's by believing in the promises of God. Notice as well, he says here, verse 56, that rest was given to the Lord's people. He says, blessed be the Lord who's given rest to to his people according to all that he promised. That is, God promised to give them rest from their enemies, to give them rest from the conflicts, remember, as they were fighting the different battles and wars there during the time of Joshua, that God promised that they were going to inherit his blessing in the land that he intended for them and that he would give them rest and relief from their enemies. And that was part of God's promise for them to give them rest. And of course, as we look at this, they inherited a land and the rest from their enemies literally as far as military conflict but really the same applies for you and I that truly rest is something that we receive from the Lord it's not something that we work for to obtain the Bible tells us that it's believing in the promises of God regarding Jesus that we experience spiritual rest in our lives Uh, Hebrews 4 tells us that there is a rest for the people of God and the Sabbath which was a literal rest for them remember when they would rest uh, once a week they would rest and cease from their labors that was all a picture ultimately of how the fact that Jesus himself the Lord Jesus Christ he is our Sabbath he is our rest we rest in him remember Jesus said uh, it tells us in Matthew's gospel chapter 11 that Jesus said come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden He said, and I'll give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And he said, and you'll find rest for your souls. So there is a rest, not a physical rest, but an internal rest, a rest for our soul. That that 
agitation, that restlessness within, that anxiety and that concern of what must I do to be right with God and how do I keep myself in right relationship with God? Well, the answer to that is simply to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to trust in his finished work and to come to Jesus because it's Jesus who promises to give rest for our soul. And if we believe upon the promises of God given to us through Jesus Christ, there is a rest that God gives to us, even as God gave rest to his people Israel. And in the same way, the Bible says that in Christ, the promises of God are yes and amen. And God's going to fulfill all of his promises that he has given to us. And even as here it tells us that Solomon could say not one word of all his good promises ever failed. And that was through Moses and through the law. How much more through the covenant of grace that we're now in through the Lord Jesus Christ. That every promise of God and there have been many promises of God given to us in Christ all throughout the New Testament that we can know not one word. Not one word of all God's promises are going to fail us. The Lord is going to do and accomplish everything that he's promised us through our relationship with Christ, ultimately the place of his coming and delivering us out of here and bringing us into the glorious rest ultimately of heaven itself when we enter into the Lord's presence. Verse 57, he then says going on, and may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers and may he not leave us nor forsake us. So again, there Solomon basically just asking uh, that God's you know presence would be with them, that the Lord would preserve them, that he would never depart from them, that he would be the one that would be sustaining us. May the Lord be with us, he says, even as he has been, and may he never leave us and forsake us. In other words, Solomon understood it had nothing to do with how glorious the, the house of God was. It had everything to do with the God of the house. It wasn't the house of God. They built a beautiful structure. But the house of God without the God of the house, as I said last time, is just a nice building. Uh, if it wasn't for the presence of the Lord in their midst, that's what made everything matter. It was when the presence of God came into the house of God and the glory of the Lord filled the house, that's what made it everything it was supposed to be. And again, as we've said many times before, you know, we can meet in a facility that's gorgeous and, and have every you know amenity and multi-million dollar everything under the sun that you could ask for, or you could meet in the most dingy building or in the midst of somebody's living room, and it's the presence of God that's what makes all the difference that the Lord is with us that we sense the Lord among us and and here Solomon understood and may he never leave us or forsake us that's what matters more than anything Lord may your presence just never leave may we never cause your presence to want to leave or depart from us verse 58 he says and may he incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and judgments, which he commanded our father. So Solomon's, again, asking here as he's pronouncing this blessing that God would give them hearts that are inclined towards or have a desire towards wanting to notice, obey the Lord and particularly to obey the word of the Lord. He says, may God give us a heart that's inclined, that's, that's drawn towards wanting to obey the word of God, to walk in his ways and keep his judgments and statutes that we've been commanded to keep. And again, what a wonderful thing, because how wonderful to realize that certainly we should have a desire to want to obey God, but to realize as well that God can put that desire into a human heart. 
that God can cause our heart to be inclined towards or to be desirous of wanting to obey his word. That God's in the business of, you know, the Bible says, writing his will onto the fleshly tablet of our heart. That God takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that's tender. And that God himself, by a work of his spirit within a human heart, can actually incline our heart to want to obey the word of God. To give us a desire to want to follow his will and to want to walk in his ways. And that's not fully dependent upon us. And and here Solomon is saying, may God do that in the hearts of his people to incline their hearts toward himself, to walk in his ways. And he says, verse 59, and may these words of mine, which I've made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he, notice again, all the dependency upon God, Solomon understood that, may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. So again, Solomon here, desirous of the fact that the Lord would be the one to sustain his people. Whatever that would require, he says there, may the Lord maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people. May God be the one to sustain and to uphold us, he's saying. May it not be all dependent upon us, but may God sustain and maintain us that, he says, verse 60, we can be a witness to all the other nations. The people of Israel, as God's people, they were to be a a missionary nation. They were intended to be God's light and to be a witness to the world around them that the Lord was the one true and living God. And so he's saying, Lord, lest we blow our witness of you. Lord, we're asking whatever it requires, he says there, whatever each day may require to sustain us and to keep us from blowing our testimony. Lord, may you do that. May you uphold us and sustain us. And boy, what a a wonderful thing to desire for ourselves as well. Lord, whatever it requires each day to keep me from derailing and making a fool of you or causing the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme in my job or in my community or among my friends or school or relationship connect. Lord, keep me maintain me Lord whatever it requires day by day keep me so that I can continue to let people know who you are and represent you well and then verse 61 he sort of gives an exhortation to the people as he's speaking to them as he concludes he says and let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments at this day so again encouraging the people here how it was important for them as well if they were going to be a testimony to the reality of the lord that god is real that he's the one living god he says our part in that is that we just would have a loyal heart to the lord that is just a heart that's committed a heart that's dedicated to the lord certainly god knows that we'll never be perfect in our performance but that our heart would just be loyal to him that we be dedicated to him in the relationship. Again, what a, a wonderful thing that that's what God wants. He wants the heart, but notice he doesn't want us to be half-hearted. He wants us to be completely loyal in our heart to him. Lord, I'm, I'm devoted unto you that our heart would have that attitude so that it would cause us then to want to live in obedience to his word. Verse 62 says, And then the king, after saying this, with all Israel, offered sacrifices before the Lord. 
And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings. Again, remember, those were the offerings where a portion of the the animal that was offered would be uh, burned in the fire and then a portion of that as well would be given to the worshiper themselves and a lot of times typically to the priests and those helping to officiate there at the altar and it would be partaken of as a meal and the idea there was sort of the you know the peace offering or fellowship offering the idea is like you were having a meal with God that you were sitting down and communing with God having relationship and fellowship with him that was the idea behind the peace offering the sacrifice of peace offerings which he offered unto the lord and look at this staggering number here verse 63 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep so the king and all the children of israel dedicated the house of the lord i mean look at that you want to talk about i mean a a tremendous devotion towards worship 22 it says thousand bulls and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep were offered that's a lot of bloodshed that's a lot of sacrifice that's a lot of expressing of devotion and love and loyalty and commitment to the lord i mean how long did that take 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep were offered in the midst of this whole gathering. Now we'll see it was a, a, a time period longer than a day, but still, I mean, that's, again, that representation of the sacrificing of the animals, that was their act of worship. So what this is representing here basically is a time of worship and experiencing God's presence and the people, I think you might fairly say, being deeply consumed in worship this wasn't hey let's just show up there and sing two three songs and get out of there and back to our lives i mean this was a dedication to being you know steeped in the act of worship they felt like god is worthy of a whole lot of worship that's a picture there of a whole lot of worship and people just being deeply entrenched in the worship of the Lord here toward God and a time of experiencing his presence here as they're dedicating the house of the Lord. It says, verse 64, on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord for there he offered burnt offerings. Now remember with the burnt offering, the entire animal of the offering, the entire thing was consumed in the fire because it was an offering of dedication god i want my whole life like this animal to just be consumed lord just consume every part of my life i don't want anything for myself i'm not holding anything back that's the idea of the burnt offering and grain offerings and the fat of the peace offering because here's why he had to consecrate the middle court because the bronze altar that was before the lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. What this is picturing here is there is such an influx of worship going on that literally from the opening of the of the temple, the, the bronze altar, that massive bronze altar was there, it wasn't able to sustain all of the sacrifices and the offerings and the worship that the people were coming with. They literally, it seems, had to establish some other places to keep offering the sacrifices because there was such an influx of the people's heart of dedication towards worship. The, the, the bronze altar was just too small to receive all the worship. What a beautiful thing. 
Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to see such a move of God in the hearts of the people that, you know, that literally is just, it's, it's too much. It's not, well, there's hardly any. Instead, it's, there's too much. We can't handle all the worship. We can't handle all the people that want to worship. I mean, that's the idea here is the picture. Is there such a, a consumption in the heart of the people that just all want to worship God? They literally can't manage it from the day the doors are open. The idea is here. Verse 65, and at that time Solomon also held a feast and all Israel with him. A great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook Egypt before the Lord our God seven days and then seven more days, 14 days. So this ended up being sort of just like a, a, a two-week long dedication ceremony. For just two weeks, the people just didn't go home. This was just like one of those extended retreats. I mean, the people just kept worshiping and sacrificing and partaking of meals together and just, again, two weeks straight of the nation just worshiping God and fellowshipping together and enjoying being in God's presence. No one's in a rush to get home or back to their lives. They're just enjoying the presence of God and the worship of God for 14 days, two weeks, this celebration ceremony as they dedicate this, the temple here. And then verse 66, on the eighth day, now that implies the eighth day at the end of the second seven-day period, so this would be basically day 15 is what that's communicating. On the 15th day, he then sent the people away and they blessed the king. And that should always be the response after a time of worship and celebration, not necessarily blessing the human king, but uh, that should be our heart, blessing Jesus, going away, blessing the king after a time of worship. And they went to their tents, notice, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and Israel, his people. So a time of great worship and experiencing God's presence, it resulted in, verse 66, people were blessing the king and they were going away with joy and gladness in their hearts, celebrating the goodness of God. And again, that should always be the resulting uh, uh, outcome of any time of worship and being in God's presence, that we would go away with just you know, blessing upon our lips towards our Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, and just departing with a sense of feeling you know, celebration and the goodness of God. Man, God is good. Man, what the Lord did, just his presence was so good and the experience of being with him was just something that brought in an enriching experience where we find ourselves, you know, just rejuvenated, if you would, and joyful and glad, not necessarily in heart because of what's happening circumstantially, but they're celebrating very simply all the good the Lord had done, that God's good. Uh, and that really should be the outcome of when we come to worship because that's the idea of celebrating who God is. Chapter 9 then tells us, And it came to pass then when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, which all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord then appeared, verse 2, to Solomon the second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Now, remember, back early in the beginning of Solomon's reign, back in chapter 3, when he first assumed the throne and he was worshiping the Lord there, it says that the Lord appeared to him that first time. Remember, back in chapter 3, we saw that. And the Lord, that time, the first time he appeared, said to him, Solomon, what do you desire? Ask whatever you want. And Solomon, remember, asked that God would give to him a understanding heart or a hearing heart. God, I just want a heart 
that is not going to hear my ideas or is not going to hear the ideas of others. But Lord, I want to have a heart that hears what's on your heart. Lord, give me an understanding heart that I might understand your heart, your will and your best because these are your people. And Lord, I've never, I've never done this before. He was confessing at that point in his life. Remember that he was just inexperienced and he was saying, Lord, what you've set before me to do, I've never done this before. I'm, I'm inexperienced. I don't have the wisdom this requires. And, and he just wanted to be able to honor and please the Lord. And he wanted to do what was best in the lives of people. So he says, Lord, the best thing that could happen in my life, he says, if you would just give me the ability to understand your will and that I could hear you clearly, your voice, so I could know how to please you and do what is most helpful for your people. And remember, the Lord was so pleased with Solomon asking that. Remember, he said, Solomon, since you've asked such a good thing, not only am I going to give you what you asked for in prayer, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for in prayer. And God said, Solomon, you're not only going to experience that, but you're also going to have not just only tremendous wisdom, but I'm also going to bless you with gold and silver and, and great prosperity. And, and God promised many of other blessings upon his life because he asked for the right thing. God said, I'm going to give you lots of things you didn't even ask for as well as a reward. Well, now we read here, it's many years later in Solomon's reign. Now we're about the middle of Solomon's reign. Remember, Solomon reigned for 40 years. So he's many years into it now, about maybe 20 years or so we're going to see in the uh, scriptures ahead, into his reign now. And now it says, verse 2, at the dedication of the temple, after he prays, worships and sends the people home, that the Lord appears to Solomon a second time, just like he had before. Now, I like this here because to me, it shows me how wonderful that the Lord gives us fresh and current encounters with him. That just like he had that experience with God back in Gibeon, he's now having an experience with God again. And this reminds me here how this is what truly the heart of God is. God wants to give us current encounters with him, fresh experiences with him. Not, oh, I remember that. Well, I always remember that experience with God. Back, God doesn't necessarily want us always reflecting upon our past experiences or oh I remember those days of and so often when we're testifying constantly about oh I remember this part of my Christian life I remember when it used to be like this or I remember I was a part of that ministry or, or this church and oh wow no, the glory days and oh remember that was so good really that's a testament that we've lost touch with God that's a testament that we've lost really a consciousness of the presence of God now. God wants us to have a current experience with him, a present encounter with him, to be longing for what God wants to do right now. And here, a second time now, he has an encounter. The Lord appears to him a second time and speaks to him, verse 3, saying, Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you've made before me. And I've consecrated this house which you've built to put my name there forever. And he assures him, Solomon, my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Again, where was that house? Jerusalem. God said, Solomon, my, here's my promise. My eyes and my heart will be right there where you built that temple perpetually. That means God's eye will never go off Jerusalem God's heart will never go off Jerusalem. His heart is there and his eye is there. And it's important that we remember that in regards to that being a promise of God as well. Solomon, my heart will always be inclined toward this house of worship that you have built. 
Now he gives him the warning, verse 4. Now, if you walk before me, as your father David walked in integrity of heart and an uprightness, to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then, notice the conditional promise, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. And as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So what God does this time Unlike the last appearance, notice God wants to give us new experiences, but the new experiences don't necessarily going to be a ditto copy of the last experience. Because the first time God appeared to Solomon, he said, Solomon, ask what you desire. What can I do for you? This time God appears to him and he doesn't say, Solomon, ask me anything. He says, Solomon, I want to tell you something. (laughs) Last time I asked you something, this time I'm going to tell you something. This time I just want you to listen. And what God does now, as we see here, is God gives him a warning because at this stage of his life, that's what Solomon needed. He needed a solemn warning for God because now the temple is built. His house has been built. He's at a different stage of life. At this point, Solomon is very prosperous, right? He's full of wisdom. We're going to see in the next chapter, he's famous. So he's at a different stage of his life. And now God says, Solomon, you need a warning. What you need now is a warning, a caution, and God gives him a a conditional promise. He says, Solomon, be careful. Walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness. The idea is he's going to say, Solomon, watch against apostasy from your heart turning away from me. Again, he uses David as an example because though David was not a man who was faithful in his performance all the time, David's heart always remained loyal to the Lord. And David didn't turn to other gods. And this is going to be Solomon's downfall. So God's giving him a warning here. Solomon, maintain integrity in your heart towards me. And he says, if you do this, he says, and you continue to obey my statutes, and I'm going to establish your throne, and you'll never have a man who says to fail to sit upon the throne of Israel from your family. Verse 6, but conditionally, if you or your sons at all turn from following, notice me, this is apostasy, turning to other gods, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then, here's the the outcome, the consequence, I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house which I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the people. So notice, this wasn't about, okay, Solomon, as long as you just keep maintaining and the people keep maintaining this religious formality. I mean, they could very easy think, and this was part of their mistake. Well, I mean, hey, we got the temple. We have the temple. We do the sacrifice thing. I mean, yeah, we worship other gods, but we do all the religious observances and we go through all the formalities and push all the religious buttons. I mean, yes, our heart is yeah I mean yeah we're whoring after other gods but we're still doing all the religious stuff and God says that's not sufficient God says I want your heart if your heart turns from following me and you begin to worship and serve other gods then he says that will bring consequence upon your life that will bring consequence upon the nation and I think again this is very important for us because sometimes we can make the grievous mistake in our own self-deception to think that as long as we go through all the religious formalities Oh, I read the Bible. I say a prayer when I'm in a crisis once in a while. I mean, I, I still go, you know, sit in the worship meetings. I, I mean, yeah, I'm doing these other things and I'm, I have idolatry going on in my private life. 
and I'm doing things that I know dishonor God, but, but I mean, I'm doing all the religious formalities. Isn't that enough, God? And God would say, no, because you're turning from me. You're dishonoring me. God wants a loyal love relationship. And just because we do religious formalities, that's no substitute for living in dedication to God and pleasing God in our lives. And here he says, Solomon, if the people and you begin to do this, he warns, verse 7, the consequence they would bring upon themselves as he says, I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given to them. And this will ultimately happen. We'll see. That land that God gave to them, because God gave them the land, he's the owner. They're just the tenant. God has no problem if need be. Ultimately, we'll see driving them out of the land because they're just the tenant. God gave them the land. God's the owner. Ultimately, this will happen. We'll see. The northern kingdom will be taken into captivity by Assyria. And then ultimately, the southern kingdom of Judah will go into captivity in Babylon. For 70 years, God will drive them out of the land because of their disobedience and their idolatry towards him. And he says in the temple itself will become a, a byword. That is a shame and a, you know, something that's mocked at among the people. Verse 8, and as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it then will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Again, the idea of hiss there is you know, like, we're almost like a whistle sound where maybe you look at something and you go, and it's kind of like you look at it and it's so bad you, you can't even bring yourself to say something. Just like, like, whoa. And you see, this will be the response as people see the land being you know, driven of its inhabitants as the house of the Lord is destroyed and burned with fire. And people walk by and they'll just go, whoa. Why would the Lord do such a thing? Why, why would the Lord bring such a thing why would the Lord do such to the land and to this house? And the answer will come because, notice, nothing wrong with God. The problem's not on God's end. That's always horrible when we bring calamity into our life and then we blame God for it. And a lot of times we want to do that. We want to do what's wrong and sinful and then all of a sudden the calamity and the consequences come that God tells us are going to come if we do those things. And then, Lord, how could you let this happen in my life? How could you let all these... Oh, how could you let all these problems happen? And, and, and the Lord is saying, how could I let them happen? <laughs> I told you if you did that, this is the calamity you would bring into your life. These are the consequences. And here, notice, the people who weren't even the people of God would look at the house of the Lord in ruins and destruction and they would answer, they forsook the Lord. It's the people of God's fault. They turned away from God. God didn't forsake them. They forsook the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt. And they've embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. This is the consequence of their own disobedience. Now, it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, that is the house of the Lord, remember, which took seven years, and the king's house, which took another 13 years, so we're 20 years halfway through Solomon's reign, that Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired, 
that King Solomon then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. There in sort of the uh, northern part of Israel where the Sea of Galilee is. Uh, somehow, again, as again, remember these contractual arrangements were made with Hiram, king of Tyre, as they worked together in collaboration to send down cedar and cypress wood and so forth. And they came and helped labor. Solomon contracted their help and they brought the great wood down there from the forests of Lebanon to him. Somehow a part of this was also that Solomon chose to give about 20 cities in the Galilee area to Hiram, king of Tyre, as a part of this compensation of this contract that was made among them. And it says, when these cities were given, that Hiram then went down from Tyre to go see the cities which Solomon had given to him. But they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these? which you have given me, my brother. And he called them by the land of Kabul as they are to this day. So uh, what this is describing, probably what happened is Solomon, you know, this is one of those uh, maybe government deal, bait and switch kind of deals. Uh, he says, I'm going to give you these 20 cities. 20 cities? Well, thanks. That's, that's Yeah. No, hey, and by the Sea of Galilee, I mean, we're talking resort stuff here. I mean, 20 cities right there on the Sea of Galilee. And he shows up and he, takes a look at the real estate that's been given to him, these cities, and they're probably like villages or like little hamlets. And he's, what are these? What are these, my brother? What are you just, what are these? This is what you give to me? This isn't what the contract said. And he says, these things, he calls them by the land of Kabul. The word Kabul, the Hebrew there, literally, it would be the rendering good for nothing. These are good for nothing. I mean, these are like little villages. These aren't cities. I can't do anything to develop these. He says, but Hiram still honored his end of the contract because it says Hiram, verse 14, sent the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the millow, which was basically sort of like a landfill, a, a retaining wall. That's what that's describing, the millow. Also the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor, and Megiddo and Gezer, these were very strategic trade cities that Solomon also developed as a part of this prospering of his kingdom. And Pharaoh, verse 16, king of Egypt had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So this was probably a gift that came uh, to Solomon, particularly under his authority when he married Pharaoh's daughter, as we read about. And Solomon built Gezer and Lower Beth Haran and Baalath and Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. This is just describing the great development uh, uh, process. He was a great developer, Solomon was, very entrepreneurial and developed a lot of the land of Israel under the prosperity of his kingdom. And all the storage cities, it says, verse 19, that Solomon had cities for chariots and cities for his cavalry. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. So again, notice, I mean, whole cities for storage, whole cities for chariots and for his cavalry. Sounds like he's multiplying gold and silver. Sounds like he's multiplying horses, two of the things which Deuteronomy 17 said that a king was not supposed to do. But as Solomon got caught up in his prosperity, he began to somewhat disregard the word of God for the kings. And all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, 
that is their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely, from these Solomon raised a forced, uh, raised, excuse me, forced labor as it is to this day. So what that's describing there, uh, in essence, is uh, those who they were not able to drive out, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, which God told them to drive out, instead of trying to drive them out, Solomon now just takes them and he makes them become basically his slave labor force. Again, remember all this building and construction that Solomon did. I mean, that, that was quite a, a development organization he's got going, building cities all over the place. And so it was these uh, inhabitants of the different peoples of the Canaanites that he used as forced labor uh, to construction uh, work, all the processes that he's doing here. Now, verse 22, interesting, the Bible tells us, however, but the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, his captains, and his commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. Others, it says, were chiefs of the officials who were over Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people who did the work. Now take notice there, that's interesting. The, the foreigners from the other nations, Solomon made them, it says, verse uh, 21, forced laborers or slaves. They were forced to do slave and labor work. However, the children of Israel, or you might also say God's children, the people of God, the children of God, the Bible tells us here that they were not made forced laborers. They served in the military as warriors and they served as servants in projects and work that was being done for the king, but they weren't slaves. They weren't forced laborers. And I think this is a beautiful picture because in the same way if we think of our King Jesus and relationship to him, you know, there are those who are outside of the people of God and those who are outside of the people of God are, are those in essence who really they're, they're enslaved. They're slaves to Satan and they're forced slaves. They have no choice. They're living a life of bondage and slavery. And though they don't even realize it, they're basically being forced to live in bondage and slavery. And yet God's people, God's children, God doesn't want forced laborers. God doesn't force his people to serve him. It's a privilege to serve the Lord. It's a privilege to get to serve our king. God doesn't want us to feel like, oh, oh I have to do this. I've got to do this ministry. Or I signed up to teach the kids. Or, oh, I've got to usher again this week. And, you know, and sometimes we can kind of start to get that attitude where we almost feel like it's such a duty. It's an obligation to have to serve the Lord. And, and you know, quite honestly, the, the Bible tells us that God wants our service to be a joy to him that we should delight to do the will of the Lord, that we should find it a privilege. We're getting to serve a king. We're getting to do the work of the king of kings. And God doesn't want us to be forced laborers. God wants us to be warriors for his kingdom. God wants us to fight his battles and, and be those who are engaged in, in his conflict and, and doing work for the Lord. And he wants us to just be, as verse 22 says, servants and overseers and supervisors, that we would serve God out of gratitude and because we want to serve him out of appreciation because we have a really great king and that we find it a pleasure to be able to serve him in those ways. 
Verse 24 says, But Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, from which Solomon had built for her, and then he built the Milo. Now there were three times a year Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord. And he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord. So he finished the temple. And then King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Gebir, which is near Eloth, or what we might call today modern Elot, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew the sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. Now, what this is describing here is how Solomon now establishes a navy as a part of this whole process. And again, these will be these individuals who are sent out. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes refers to you know all these things that were brought in for you know Solomon. How basically, I mean, he just literally uh, you know pursued everything he possibly could. We're going to see as we go further along in the Old Testament. I mean, Solomon was bringing in everything you could imagine from other nations ivory and monkeys to entertain himself i mean he just was bringing in everything and this is probably how a lot of that was procured it tells us here that what solomon did was he built a fleet of ships in ezion gebir which is near elot now again i said that's modern elot and if you look at a map there of israel if you go all the way down to the very very southern tip there's an area called Elad, and where it really is is the Gulf of Aqaba, which is basically the passageway then into the Red Sea. And if you keep following the Red Sea and keep going south, it just goes then right out into the Indian Ocean, and that's how you would go out then to the areas of India and those other areas, you know, in really the far eastern area where they would go out to. And what this is describing, how Solomon built a navy here so he could send out these ships and Hiram, again, works in cooperation. He apparently, again, them being uh, from the area of Tyre, they were known to be very equipped on the water. So they now send down those who are acquainted with expertise on the sea to go out and work with the servants of Solomon. And verse 28, notice, it says, And they went to Ophir, and we're not certain exactly where that's at, and acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Now that 420 talents of gold, that's somewhere like around 16 tons. Uh, that's a lot of gold. Uh, so they're now going out to these other areas, uh, traveling around, going to the far west, bringing back these things. And here's the thing, Solomon is going to go and he is going to acquire so much in fact, so much gold and silver, the Bible ultimately tells us that under his reign, that gold and silver was more common in the land, it says, than stones. Now, that's a lot of gold and silver. Because there's a lot of rocks if you've ever gone on to that, over to that part of the world before. But Solomon ultimately is going to say, there's nothing that I deprived my eyes of. Anything I wanted, anything I saw, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and what does he ultimately say in regards to all of that? It's all vanity. Vanity of vanities. And he says, I, I mean, Solomon pursued everything. Women, lust, pleasure, partying, alcohol, sensuality, you know, entertainment, knowledge, understanding, gold, silver. Let the list go on and on. He says, and you know what all of that resulted in? Emptiness. Emptiness, vanity. It was like grasping for the wind. Literally, it's soap bubbles. 
And that's the idea. You know, you ever see a bubble? Your kids play with bubbles, or maybe you still play with bubbles. I don't know. But, you know, you see a bubble go, and it's, it kind of glistens in the light, and you, everybody tries to right, maybe try and catch it, and as soon as you touch it, gone. In a second, it's gone. And, and what God is telling us is, right, everything in this world, not that those things in and of themselves are, are naturally wrong, but they are not the source of fulfillment to a human being. And what God is trying to say is, let me spare you the exercise. Solomon already did the course for you. You can try and satisfy yourself with all those things and all you will do is spend a whole lot of time to find out none of those things satisfy. None of those things fulfill. Solomon says at the end of the book Ecclesiastes, this is the sum of the matter, is walk with your God. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Because it's only in experiencing God that there is any sense of true fulfillment in any of our lives. Let's end there for this evening.